Well, if you have your Bibles today, we are going to move into John chapter 7 here in just a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, uh, you remember last week we, we saw one of the most powerful yet completely unknown verses in the Bible for the times that we live in, really any time, but certainly for where we're at today. And hopefully uh, you can now see and understand how, and this is really what I wanted to get across to you, how that one verse can be the leading key to one great study after another uh, in the Word of God. Going beyond, like I said last week, the crush depth of most of God's people, uh, getting down deep into the Word of God and really getting everything out of it that you can. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, you know, we're living in a Christianity that is fast sp- spiraling into apostasy, uh, and, um, you know, holding on to the truth and learning the truth and getting the truth uh, is, uh, is out of reach for most people today because of where they're at. And you'll remember from our Bible Institute in our other times on Thursday night, I, a while back I've given this to you several times. Um, in fact, I even mentioned it Thursday night. A great verse uh, in itself uh, that is again a blockbuster verse, and that's in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9. You don't have to turn back to it, but he says there, <clears throat> he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. And, uh, you know, God will show us from this verse what's going to uh, happen before it happens. And, uh, you know, that's another lost treasure verse in the Bible today. The idea that whatever's coming our way should never catch us by surprise. He told us here that the new things that are coming, and, well, you can make a list of those, but the new things that are coming our way that we're going to have to deal with, he tells us before it gets here. Last week was a great example of that as we just went to the Bible and let the Bible lay itself out. You know, God knows that we as His people, uh, we're going to have to make some difficult choices in life. Not just because of the times that we live in, but, you know, all through our Christian life, no matter when. There'll be issues that we have to face, decisions that we have to make that will be hard sometimes. So he will show you and I uh, what you're up against. He will make it very clear what we're facing before it hits us so you don't make the wrong uh, choice or the wrong decision. You know what? You see this great principle in dealing with people. You can predict almost with 100% accuracy when a marriage is going to fall apart. You can predict with uncanny precision when somebody is heading down the wrong road and probably going to, 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 to leave the church with something that they're upset about. You can just, because the patterns get established and they, people begin to form patterns and the patterns never lie because patterns are what the Bible is built on. And, uh, you know, it's simply the key to any of this is just simply knowing what to look for. And uh, because we... You know, we can never afford to lose our perspective. Never. You know, there's some decisions that we make that will ultimately carry a bottom line uh, uh, situation with it. Uh, It's going to have an end result. 
And when you learn those patterns and you know this is what somebody says they're going to do, you know how it's going to end because the pattern's already been established. And we can't ever afford to lose our perspective. We can't afford to lose our understanding because that will affect our ministry and what we're going to try to do for the Lord. And uh, all I tried to do uh, last week and show you that everything that's going on today is not something that is new, <clears throat> even though to us it's new. But I ran it back to Second Thessalonians 2, 7, where it talked about the mystery of iniquity doth already work. And that is the context by which you have to view everything in life today, and everybody down through history had to view what they went through in life today. Simply being able to not just see the devil as the Antichrist or the man of sin or look at the tribulation period, but also see that it's not just what's unfolding around you today now, and this is so crucial, but that all of this will be a pattern in history. So you can see it and learn from history, the history of it, but you must establish the patterns first. I'm telling you, folks, when you get over there in Hebrews, you'll find that God did everything by the pattern. And when you can go through the Word of God and build your life into it and see and understand the patterns, it makes life a lot easier. You know, it's like, you know, you take a, a, a woman or even a man who's a tailor, and they, they take cloth, you know, and they can make a beautiful dress or he can make a beautiful suit or really nice stuff. And they just take a bolt of cloth and they take that and then voila, on the other end is a beautiful gown, wedding dress, a beautiful dress or a nice looking suit. But you see, it never would have come into being without that person having a pattern. Patterns are the key to everything in life. And for you and for me, you know, it's just simply being able to see those patterns and understand that uh, what we're up against now will certainly, uh, most certainly will be the pattern that you have to follow, the chain of evidence. And uh, you, you got to know this. Just as the Bible will be the book that shows us God's pattern down through history because God wants you to know where He's at, that he's coming to establish his kingdom. He'll give you every piece of his pattern so wherever you're at in history, you know where he's at in relationship to that. So the Bible will be our book to show you the pattern of the devil uh, to stop God's plan. And as we saw last week, to establish himself as God, the devil, and I showed you that in Ezekiel chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 14. You want to remember now that that is the devil's main deal. He wants to be God. And uh, most people miss this, but when you go over to Matthew chapter 4, you have what the commentators call the temptation of Christ. And this is where the devil comes to him and he tries to get him to uh, be subservient to him. And he comes to him three times with three different offers and, of course, uh, you know, uh, the Lord refuses every one of them. It's always been interesting to me that within that story, there's another great principle, is that everything that he asked the Lord to do is something that Christ is going to do at the second coming of Christ. 
And it's always been an incredible thing to me that that's a great picture of what the devil tries to do with all of us. There was nothing wrong with what the devil wanted him to do. It was just out of the timing of what God wanted to do it. And you're going to find one of the biggest problems we all have is the devil to get us to do not just the bad things, but to get us to do the right things at the wrong time. And boy, that comes out of that great story. Well, anyway, he comes down here, and the last thing he tries to get him to do, he he says he takes him up on a mountain, and he shows him uh, all the kingdoms of this world. And he said, I'll give, saying, devil to Christ, I will give you those kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. Now, most people just think that is a whimsical, you know, foolish thing that the devil was saying to him. No, 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 not so. No, the devil wants to be God. And in Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, when Christ comes back, that's exactly what God does. It says that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of his Christ. God gives them to Christ at the second coming. And what the devil wanted to do is he wanted to uh, give those to Christ. And if he would have accepted those, then Christ would have had to have accepted him as God. Oh, it's, it's quite incredible. And along with that, we have another blockbuster verse that uh, found in Job chapter 41, verse 12. God says concerning the devil that I will not conceal. He's talking to you and me. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Clearly defined for us in the scriptures. The parts where he says, I will not conceal his parts. That's the men that down through history, the devil has used to accomplish what he's trying to do. When he says, I will not conceal his power, that will be the nations by which he's tried to accomplish everything he wanted to accomplish. And when he says, I will not conceal his comely proportion, that will always be the religions that he has used to try to get about what he wanted to do. And as he says in verse 14, God will open to us the doors of his face. God will establish a pattern of everything down through history. He does not want, Isaiah 42, he doesn't want us to wake up in the morning and be surprised. He doesn't want something to overtake us that we're not ready for. He wants us to know through the Bible, but through the patterns in the Bible, and knowing that the mystery of iniquity doth already work, where we're pretty much at. And uh, we talked about this. We talked about it last week. We talked about it Thursday night. Thursday night, you remember that I got so many questions this week of what's going on in current events in Afghanistan and how it impacts everything that we are as Christians in a nation. And now you have a better handle on that because, you know, we, we, we talked about that. And, uh, you know, the war unfolding in Afghanistan and, uh, uh, of the complete collapse of America uh, as a, being able to do anything about it and being a world leader. And, um, and, and, and we know now, and I've told you this, that we're, we're going to go through some rough times. There's no question about that. We have been here in this church now right around 18 years. And, uh, you know, I look across this crowd and, you know, you're all at different places and different levels. Some of you have been with me for 30 years or longer. You would be what I would call the old guard. You've been with me for 30 years, some of you even more than that. 
and we go back together. We, we've got a lot, of, uh, a lot of ground under our boots. Some of you have been with me 10 years, 15, 18, 20 years. Some of you less than that. But by now, if you've been around here four or five years, maybe less than that, I don't know. You know me by now. And you know, especially you old guard people, you know uh, what I preached all those years and even before here, that I've never changed one position on where I'm at with the Bible and what it teaches. I I may better understand, most certainly I understand things better now on a deeper level, but I have not come to the place where I hear I stand before you and come up with some goofy heresy uh, that now that uh, it deviates from everything that is the pattern of the Bible down through history. I preach today what I preached 35 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. I haven't changed one thing. And I'm saying all that to say this. You know, I saw this day coming a long time ago and a long way off, Isaiah 42, 9. I preached about it. I tried to warn God's people, tried to prepare God's people. It didn't mean a lot to most people back then, but it's starting to mean something to them now because we're starting to see it all fall apart around us. And all those years, I've tried to build people by giving them the truth, trying to build into their life some kind of stability in a world that is completely unstable. I knew that there was going to come a time when the world was going to turn to silly putty. And I needed men and women with concrete legs. I needed God's people with steel in their backbone and the ability to be stable in a world that is unstable. Unfortunately, in an unstable world, most of God's people are as unstable as the world is. And they're fearful. They're afraid. And, of course, the Bible says that perfect love casteth out fear. And the Bible says that you and I, as God's people, have nothing to fear if we rely on the patterns and the principles found in the, in the Word of God. And, uh, you know, through all those years, I, I tried to just take the people that God gave me and build steel in their backbones, give them something worth living for. Uh, not just to do the work of God, though that was important, and you do a tremendous job with that, and we've got so many ministries and people that we're reaching not only in Kansas City, but around the country and literally around the world, but to keep us in the work for what's coming. Because we're going to have to make some hard decisions. You're going to have to make some hard decisions. I'm sorry. The time where we can just have a cush Christianity has come to an end, I'm afraid. And, you know, my philosophy in ministry has always been a very simple one. Just take one person at a time, one couple at a time, one family at a time, and try to develop them through the Word of God. I'm not only, and the way I've done that is to build, as you can look within the inner structure of our church, I've built different levels of, of, of ministry that wherever you're at, whatever you need, there's, there's, there's a structure for you because that's what it needs to be. I am not interested in this coming on Sunday morning and just getting up and preaching a candy stick message and, you know, and then you go out your way and I go my way. And uh, no, no, no. We have to make life commitments together. 
The first commitment we make to life is to the Lord Jesus Christ when you got saved. The second commitment has to be to the Word of God. And then the third commitment has to be to this church. Obviously, your family is in the mix of that, and you know how that fits in there. But you have to take people one at a time. And uh, you develop them through the Word of God. And, hey, going in, you know that not everybody's going to make it. And uh, it's, it's the nature of warfare. There has never been a warfare that has been without casualties. And Christianity is a warfare, Ephesians chapter 6, and you're going to have, to have, you're going to have casualties. Sometimes they're casualties of collateral damage. Sometimes they're casualties of a self-inflicted wound. But you have casualties. And not everybody is going to make it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a thing where you just, you've got to get past that. Now, I said all that, and I want to continue here for just a minute. God has been so good to this church. Uh, He's brought uh, to us, uh, as far as, in my opinion, he's brought to me and this church the best of the best uh, of the people that we have, Uh, both here and, of course, on on the YouTube are some incredible people. You know, young men and young women fill this church. Young couples fill this church. Older moms and dads are the stabilizing force in this church. And then I have an elite core of seniors, elders, uh, who will take their stand and have the steel that they need to, to hold the line. I mean, it's just the way that we have built this here. Now, <laughs> I'm a collector. I've been that way all my life. Uh, I grew up in, uh, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1950, uh, and, uh, you know, I, was a, uh, I grew up in the shadow of World War II and, of course, Korea. All my uncles and all my family were either in World War II or in Korea. And uh, so when I was growing up, that was the permanent thing in everybody's mind. And it was a thing where, you know, at a very early age, I always wanted to be in the military, which I fulfilled that in my life, and uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, from a kid, I was obsessed with with that generation, uh, which I believe was the greatest generation in the 20th century, and I began to collect, I mean, uh, guys would come back and they'd give me this or they'd give me that, and I'd start to have a, I'd start to collect those things, World War II memorabilia. And, uh, you know, I had some incredible stuff, and I, I, I enjoyed it. But most importantly, I enjoyed the history of it. And uh, I, I, would get into, I would get somebody's grouping that had a history to it. And I had, at one time, I probably had over 100 of them. And I would study the history. And some of these guys, actually, before they died, Somebody in the family had them sit down and detail out everything that they went through in World War II. It was incredible. I, I would find as much information about them as I can. I would talk to their family members. I would try to get, uh, and I would tell them, and I would do displays at schools and at military places, and I, and I wanted to keep their history alive because to me, the moment you lose the history of something, you've lost everything. Because if you don't know what the price that was paid for what you got right now, you know what? And this is the problem with you young generation kids. Not Maybe not you in particular here, but your generation. You don't understand the price that was paid. 
I mean, some of these kids think that manual labor was the president of Mexico. I mean, they, they don't have a clue. You think Taco Bell is the Mexican phone company. And it's a thing where we've lost that. And when you lose that, you're in trouble. We got kids in this church. You know, I was, I, I don't know. Guadalcanal happened in 1942 in the Solomon Islands. And nobody knows who Guadalcanal is and, or what, what, what it was. And it's a chain of islands in the, in the Solomon Islands. And uh, in 1942, it is the first place that the Americans were going to stop the Japanese in their advance in World War II. <laughs> the Japanese took over just about everything in the Pacific. They bombed Pearl Harbor. They took Wake Island. Uh, they invaded the Philippines. And uh, we decided to take our stand in Guadalcanal because we wanted to stop them from getting into Australia. If they'd have got Australia, we'd have been in trouble. And I get reading those stories about the 1st Marine Division and, 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 and those, those guys back there. You realize how many, if, if there, how many kid guys, young men here, you're 14 or 15 years old? Raise your hand. You're, how old are you? 15. Anybody else? We only got one 15-year-old? Where's the other one at? Who? Who? Oh, how old are you? 13? 14. Excuse me. Excuse me. Okay, I'll make you feel good. I thought you were 20. Does that help you? Okay. Anyway, you realize... Those two guys that age, they were young men. Now, Guadalcanal was a hellhole. It was the first time we were up against the Japanese. You ought to read what happened at Alligator Creek. You ought to read about the bonsai charges. You ought to read the, how that they, the American Navy had to pull back, and they were left by themselves, and they hung on to Guadalcanal by their fingertips. And yet, I've read the stories of young men, 14 and 15 years old, their age, the big boys lied about their age, got into the Marine Corps, and found out they went through the whole battle of Guadalcanal, as they did all those at 13 and 14 and 15 years old. Hard to believe. But that was the generation back then, see? That was the generation. I, I, I can't imagine a kid 14 years old facing what those guys had to face and staying in, and staying with it, and fight. When the commanding officer found out how old they were, those kids said, I ain't going home, and the commanding officer fudged on the record so he could keep them. They're a great generation. And I think to myself, what did they have back then that we don't have today? And I got lost in the history of those things. number of years ago, not that many years ago, I was at a, a flea market. And there's a big footlocker there that was filled with paperwork. Had some insignia in it and had, I think it had an officer's visor cap in it or whatever, but, you know, it intrigued me. And I asked the lady where it came from. She said it came out of a house here in Independence. And I asked her what she wanted for it. And she wanted like $30 for it. So, you know, I got a little Jew in me. I offered her 20, and she took it. <laughs> Shalom. <laughs> when I got that home, it was the saddest thing that I've ever seen in my life. It was a complete record 
of a pilot of a B-17 that was killed bombing Germany in 1944. He was from Independence. He had a wife who lived in Independence then and up to the point that she died. This all came out of her attic. Nobody knew how he died. After the war, when the POWs were released, three of his crew came back and said that their B-17 got hit over Germany and it was on fire and they were going down. Three of them got out. The pilot and the rest of them were trying to get out when the plane exploded and he was killed. Of course, during the war, nobody knew that. He was officially missing in action. Nobody knew who were prisoners were. Nobody knew nothing. They just didn't come back, and they were presumed missing in action. It wasn't until 1945 that they began to be repatriated, and you found out, you know, who was still alive. From 1944 to 1940, almost 46, there had to be 300 letters that this wife wrote to her husband she not knowing he was dead. I read those letters and I could actually feel one letter would be up, the next letter it would be filled with worry that maybe, and every one of those letters, every one of them, all of them, came back to her with a red stamp on it, undeliverable, missing in action. She kept Sending those letters, sending those letters, sending those letters. And one of them, she would start to talk about how that she missed him and that she hoped he was okay. And she was praying for that he was okay, that he was a prisoner. And the next one, she would be the opposite. And she would be distraught because of the fact for all those months, all of those letters. And I read those letters and thought to myself, what she went through. And yet, it's what sustained her at the end of the war. When they found out what happened, she was told that he was killed. 1944, December 1944. His picture and the story was in the Independence newspaper. There was two copies of it in there. And it told the story of what happened and laid the whole thing out. And I looked at all of that. And I thought to myself, every time she sent a letter, what she must have felt when it came back stamped in red, missing an action undeliverable. That was the greatest generation who paid a price for you and I to be right where we're at today and have the freedoms that we have. Now, there's a, a, a suitable end to that story. I found out through some friends of mine that over in England, they were going to where his where the base was that he was flying out of. He was in the 390th or something like that. Uh, that they were, re- were going to, re- the base was there, but it was dilapidated. They were going to redo the base and bring it back up to wartime status to make a museum out of it. When I found out, I contacted the guy, told him what I had, and I donated that to that, uh, to that museum there at the air base. And uh, you'd go over there today, it's all on display. He sent me a picture of it. And I, and I thought to myself, I'm not just a collector of the memorabilia. I'm a collector of history. 
And yet I understood that every piece I held in my hand, I was just a custodian of a piece of history. Now, I said all that to say this. I'm a collector. But you know what my greatest collection is? You folks. Because as far as Christianity is concerned, in the day and age, you are the greatest generation. You folks, right here. And you're my collection that God has given me here. And in my mind, nowhere in the world could I find the quality of men and women that are going to saddle up and get into the fight. You know, when we go to Jason's Deli after the games or the 4th of July or softball, Memorial Day, even tonight at kickball, you know, uh, you know, we go to uh, Branson, any activity together. I just like to walk around and look at everybody that God has given me and just thank God for the great collection of men and women. And, and, and I say that, I say this, I know we're not perfect. There's always room for improvement for all of us. We all make mistakes. I know I do. But but no church bats a thousand. People will come and people will go. I, I get that. But the thing here for those of you who are part of this, we cover for each other. We help each other. We will be each other's strength when that person is weak. We are the embodiment of Romans 14.1 that are either are strong not the barely infirmity of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's why this September or October, like I said a couple of weeks ago, I want to put together another leadership training class. Uh, I, 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 it won't be on YouTube. It won't be something that everybody can get tapes. It won't even be on the, it won't even be on the tape thing. It'll be just for those who, who are qualified to want to go through that. And I told you that, you know, we're ready to do this because of all the new people and where you're at in a timely manner because people are growing and it's time now to take many of you to the next level. I get that. But I would be lying if I did not tell you that another reason I'm doing it is to get as many of you up to speed for what's coming in life. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of David's mighty men of valor. You'll find that story back in 2 Samuel 23 and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And I look at those, you know, I look at those men and they were special to David. David was special to them. David had the army of Israel, but within that army he had his mighty men of valor who, when you read their accounts, were pretty spectacular. They stepped over the line and were greater in what they did and they had a greater bond with David and David with them than the average, you know, soldier in the Israeli army. And as I read that, I thought to myself, you know what? And I compared it one time with Saul's mighty men of valor. Well, that's a great comparison. David's mighty men of valor chose to be with him because they wanted to be with him and they loved him. When Saul had his, he had to force them. Nobody was volunteering. He conscripted them. He made them. And I thought to myself, 
Wow. And I got looking at that and I thought to myself, that's exactly what I got here. And I looked at the four key elements that David's mighty men of valor had and I thought, man, those are the four same elements that I look for in building people. The first one was courage. They were courageous men. The second one was determination. They were determined to do whatever they had to do to get the job done. The third one was loyalty. They were fiercely loyal to David. And the fourth one was the one thing that pulled it all together, that they had honor. And yet those are the four qualities that are missing in God's people Christianity today. And they, you know, they, like us, had to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And it's quite incredible. America today reminds me of the sinking of the Titanic in 1912. We're sinking fast, and the crew are rearranging deck chairs for the next social event. And nobody sees the ship is sinking. We are experiencing a total collapse and are in free fall to anarchy in this country. I told you Thursday night, you know, that and I made a reference to the fact that during World War II, Germany lost the war because she opened up a second front. If she had just fought the British and the Americans... She, she swept through Europe, but the two big forces she had to take was Britain and then America. If she'd have just stayed with that, we'd have had a tough time defeating her, but she opened up a second front, and that's when she attacked Russia. And when she attacked Russia, even though in 41 and 42, even though the war was going to go on for three more long years, she was finished because you cannot win a two-front war. And I showed you Thursday night how that America is facing a six or seven front war. And this is why we will not win. We have the war in the Middle East all exasperated now with the collapse of Afghanistan, the total debauchery of trying to get out of there. And now uh, the the Taliban are, are, are actually posing pictures wearing American uniforms, using American weaponry that we left behind and thanking America for all of the billions and billions and billions of dollars of hardware that we left behind to arm them. There was one report that they were dressing up in American uniforms and wearing American weapons and taking somebody that spake English very well and going door to door saying, we are Americans, we're here to get you out. And when the people let them in, they found out they weren't Americans. And they arrested them. We're a joke to the world today. And now that we're out, guess who's going to come to dinner tomorrow afternoon? Russia and China. And it's a terrible thing. So we got that war coming to us. Then we have the pandemic that's raging across this country. The COVID-19 has started, and now the Delta version and of it, and, uh, you know, the country complete in disharmony over it. I mean, there's been so much information, misinformation, so much confusion, because uh, nobody really knows what they're doing. And so that's the second war we're up against that's divided us. And then we have the southern border, which is a sieve. I mean, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are just coming into this country. Wide open. And then we have the complete... 
war on crime, trying to defund our police, letting gangs roam the streets. Every weekend, when you get up on Monday, you'll find that in New York and in Chicago or some place, some major city where it's out of control, 9, 10, 12 people shot to death, another 80 wounded. It's out of control. And it's a thing where this idea that we wanted to fund the police, and it was always by the politicians that wanted to defund the police, but they had their own private security protecting them. Now we see what happens when you take our brave police officers off the streets. It's a tragedy. It's a war. Then we have the race war. Everybody dividing everybody against everything. So we see this country at at least six or seven wars, six or seven different fronts that we're trying to fight, and we can't do it. And what the devil has done, mystery of iniquity doth already work, as I told you Thursday night, he's, he just simply practiced the, the great strategy back in Joshua, divide and conquer. When any church gets divided, you get conquered. When two Christians get divided, you get conquered. When a country gets divided, you get conquered. And this country is divided on so many areas, it makes Hitler's two-front war look like kids playing marbles. We're in trouble. And, uh, you know, it has been said, and I love history, that at the Alamo, and the Alamo was down in San Antonio, which is San Antonio, Texas today in 1836, that the guy in charge, a guy by the name of Colonel Travis, on the night before the final battle. Now, there was about 200-some-odd men in the Alamo. Santa Ana, who was the guy head in Mexico, uh, you know, he had an army of 10,000 guys or more. And he wanted to come up and take Texas. And he couldn't just bypass the Alamo. And while he was going to do that up in up in some part in Texas, up there or wherever, uh, Sam Houston was trying to build an army to fight Santa Ana. So the Alamo was key because every day that they held Santa Ana up, and he couldn't just bypass it. Every day they held him up bought a little more time for them to build an army to fight Santa Ana. And on the last night before the final battle, it is said that Colonel Travis came out and called all the men up and pulled out his sword and drew a line in the sand. And he told the men what was coming the next day, that they would not be able to hold them off. They'd lost a lot of people. Food was gone. They had evacuated the women and the children, and they knew this was the final stand. And the Mexicans blew the, the, the trumpet and threw up the flags. I forget what the Mexican term for it is, but it was going to be no quarter. They was not going to take any prisoners. They're going to kill everybody. And he took his sword and drew a line in the sand, and he said any man that wanted to stay and fight was to cross that line. And anybody that didn't cross that line was free to leave that night, and no dishonor or stain would be on their character because of what they were going to face, and nobody was going to survive. Nobody left. Everybody stayed. And they all stayed and paid the price for the state of Texas, and probably we would not have the great state of Texas today if it wasn't for what they did in the Alamo. And today, the hand of God has drawn a line in the sand with his sword, the Word of God. And God's people will have to take their stand. 
And I get it. Unlike the Alamo, many of God's people are sneaking over the back wall. And, uh, and you want to remember that Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wicked high places. Their warfare was bullets, bloods, and guts, and bombs. Ours is a spiritual warfare. Now, I would never dare to speak for you or anybody else, and I would never do that, but I can actually say, speaking this for me and my family, you know, we'll hold the line and we'll make our stand with the Word of God. Joshua said over there in Joshua 21, verse 15, he says uh, about the fact that, uh, you know, your house is going to stand for the truth. Me and Barb and Jamie and Danny and Kelly and Woody, Kenzie, uh, Maddie, Macy and, and, and Jordan, uh, we'll, we, we've already crossed that line. We're staying. And uh, it's a thing to us is the fact that uh, if this thing, if, if this church was established by God and doing what God wants it to do, then we need to see it through to the end. So, you know, I want to try to blend last Thursday and last week into this one. So today, when we enter into John chapter 7, I want to lay out another great truth based on last week, the intro that I just gave you and what we talked about on Thursday night. And I want to begin reading in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, and I want you to listen very carefully. It says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee... For he would not walk in Jewry, for because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart thence and go into Judea, and thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. And then it says in verse 5, For neither did his brethren believe in him. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We ask you now to take what we've already talked about last week, today, Thursday night, and then tie it all into where we're going today. We love you. I love this church. I love the men and women that have crossed the line, that are going to stay and hold the line. And I pray, Father, you'll continue to bless in all that we do. Thank you for your good hand in this church and for the many, many, many people that you're bringing to us as we continue to build them one at a time. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, what a great truth this is. Now, there's a common mistake today that God's people will make in understanding how God will do things and how he'll work. They think that God actually came into the world to put everything together, to get everybody together. together. And, of course, that'll be the mindset of the ecumenical movement and the neo-evangelical movement. They, they look at everybody, no matter what you believe, put the doctrine aside and let's just all kind of a kumbaya relationship. But yet nothing could be farther from the truth. The Bible makes it clear before God can put anything together, he first has to divide it. Now, you first find that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, law first mentioned, where you first find the word divide in your Bible. And there God divided the light from the darkness. Now, that's God and the devil, by the way. There is no sun yet. And so the light there is the glory of God, and the devil, uh, the darkness there is the light of the devil, which the Bible tells you in Matthew is a, is a dark light. 
And so, uh, so you'll find from here, God is in a dividing business uh, before he can ever put anything together. He fundamentally divides light from darkness the rest of history. You're just told there in, in Genesis 1-4, that's where it starts. Now, that's a great key. Now, you want to learn what I'm about to say. Here it is. Here's how it works. God will divide, and then he will put together. You see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. The devil, on the other hand, listen carefully, God will divide, and then he puts together. The devil will subtract first, then he divides. That'll be Genesis 3, 1 through 4, see? Now, that's the pattern right there. Now, you want to look at Luke chapter 12. And pick it up in verse 51 here through 53, and it says this. This is Jesus speaking. Suppose ye that I come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So we see that based on this principle, that God did not come to put everything together till he divides something. You see, here's how it works. Follow the pattern. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, God divided to light the darkness, and then he divides it from there. In Exodus chapter 12, he divided Israel from, from uh, Egypt. Before that, he wanted to divide Jacob, or uh, Abraham, excuse me, from Lot. See how it works? Now, when you and I got saved, Colossians chapter 2, you know what he did? He divided your soul from your flesh. After you got saved, then he sets you apart. We call it sanctification in the Bible, and he divides you from the world. You have an old nature and a new nature. After salvation, you'll see very quickly how God's truth will separate you from your friends, the world, and unfortunately, sometimes even your family. And in our text today, we say how that when Christ came into the world, the Son of Man, the Son of God, you see that the truth, he himself, Divided him from his own family. Verse 5. Now pay attention. This will be a real blessing to many of you today uh, that have experienced something along these lines. Now we saw a couple of weeks ago Christ as the bread of life, John chapter 6. And after God's great discourse, or Christ's great discourse on truth, the Word of God, Christ, you know, the manna from heaven. Look what happened in John chapter 6, verse 66. And this will happen every time there's a great expose of truth. John chapter 6, verse 66 says, Then after he did that, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. It divided them. And now in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, his own family, his brothers and sisters, they want nothing to do with him. They don't believe in anything that he's saying. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would teach us and have us to believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. What does that mean? 
it means that she stayed a virgin all of her life and never had any more kids. And of course, nothing could be farther from the truth. We know that that's not true. We know the Catholic Church needs that because of the goofy things that they want to try to get you to believe down the line someplace. But coming back to the Bible, the pattern, we know from here, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, and then also from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, and over there in Mark chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, that his physical brothers and sisters are laid out for you, and the brothers, the men, are lifted out by name. And all of this, all of them, all of his literal physical brothers and sisters, except one, reject him and don't believe in him. And of course, that's James. And you'll find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 6 through 8, where James becomes an apostle. He's a key player in Jerusalem uh, during the book of Acts. You know, I've often thought about that. Could you imagine for a moment being in the same family with the Lord Jesus Christ, watching him, you know? I mean, uh, I mean, all the things. And then uh, could you imagine being in the same family with the Son of God, rejecting who he was, and then wind up at the great fine throne judgment? That's, that's scary beyond belief. I mean, it isn't like us who have to, to, to do, you know, read a Bible or hear some goofy preacher lay it out. They, went with, they, they walked every day with him. They saw him with an understanding of the scriptures that even the scribes and the Pharisees scratched their head and said, how can this man know letters never having learned? They saw the miracles that he did. They were right there firsthand. Wow, you talk about a day at the great white throne judgment. That's scary, man. That's scary. And along with that, we also know that in the tribulation period, the truth of the Word of God will separate families again. And for this, we want to look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 22, and this will be a tribulation context. And he says in verse 16, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought of, how you, uh, of what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour when ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Now those will be two good verses you want to hold on to. Verse 21. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated for all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Now clearly that's a tribulation passage. And you want to add to that Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13, and then Luke chapter 12, verse 53. So with all that so far establishing as a pattern, it's no surprise that today in families, many of God's people will face uh, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, that the truth of the Word of God will separate you from them. And, you know, I've been in the ministry over 50 years now, and I've seen it all through my ministry. I mean, 50 years worth. 
I mean, this isn't something that's just locally and isolated. This goes on all the time. And, of course, uh, you know, we've had over the years where uh, some of you had moms and dads that did not care about the Bible. They did not care about this church. They didn't care about truth or salvation. Uh, or maybe they did, but they just were out there someplace. And so they, 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 so you, you had to break with them. We've got kids in this church that moved all the way across the country because they needed uh, what you, you give them here. And, uh, you know, and many times, you know, we get blasted by it. People, you know, give us all kinds of gr- grief for it and everything. And, 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 but the greatest witness, I mean, you can say whatever you want to say. You can spout off and say whatever you want to say. But you know what the greatest witness against you is? Your own kids. They're here. They're growing. They're ministering. They're preaching. They're doing the work of the ministry. And where are you at? You're a 300-pound couch potato eating there watching television, eating snacks, and you're going nowhere. But your kids, God's doing something with. You know what happened? Truth divided you. And I'll tell you right now, the greatest witness against any mom and dad down through history that God divides their kids or husbands and wives or however it breaks down. The greatest witness against those people are the ones who stay and do what's right. Seen it all my ministry. There's never a time when it didn't happen. And uh, I've seen it where the parents were Roman Catholic and the kids get saved. They start growing in the Word of God and mom and dad has a fit because they, they think that we're stealing them from the Catholic Church. They're right. I've seen it with other religions like the Charismatics where mom and dad are so into it. I've seen it with the Church of Christ. I've seen it with Jehovah Witnesses. I've seen it with every aspect, all of my ministry, that truth will separate you. Real truth will separate you. Now, you would think for a mom and a dad, if they had any spiritual sense at all, that that would keep them awake at night. Why did I lose my kids to a church? Why did I lose my kids to a Bible? What's wrong with us that they don't want to be part of what we're doing? We didn't like it. We left, but they're staying. That's got to be tough. The truth of God's Word in doing right with it divides people, and many times from your own family, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. So I say to this, if that's happened to you, you're in good company. You really are. And you know what? In the church age when it happens, now I can't speak for the tribulation because I'm not in it and won't be in it. I didn't live back in the Old Testament, but I'm relevant to the church age here. And in the church age, you know what, what God does when that happens? And that's happened to so many of you. You know what God will do when you lose your family to truth or your friends to truth? Because it'll separate you from your friends, not just your family. You'll have friends that you hang out with, and you see this all the time. Before you got saved, you hung out with them, and the moment you get saved, everything about your world changes, and there stays the same. And it's like the elephant in the room. Suddenly, something's not right. They want to go out and party. You don't want to go there anymore. You want to go to Thursday night Bible study. They want to go shoot pool. Nothing wrong with pool, but I'm just saying. You want to go do your thing. They want to go do theirs. 
You, uh, you, you go out on Saturday night a couple of times with them, and by 11 o'clock, you say, oh, I got to go. 11 o'clock, man, we're always out till 2 or 3. I got church in the morning. What? See? It divides you. So not only will it just be your family, it'll also be your friends. So you know in the church age what God does, what he will do? He'll give you a new family. I don't know how many young men and young ladies over my years I've been a spiritual dad to. Some of them even call me dad. Call me grandpa, I'll kill you. <laughs> many of you have been a spiritual father to some of these kids. Been a spiritual mother to them. Why? Because their own physical father and mother are nowhere to be found. He'll give you new spiritual brothers and sisters. He'll give you new friends. You see, when God, here's the pattern. When God divides, then he adds. And if truth will divide you from your mom and your dad or your family or your friends or your brothers and your sister, then God will add a new family to it. And he'll give you on a spiritual side everything that you need. He'll do that after the devil has subtracted your family out of your life because of truth. He'll now give you friends that are built on truth. And there, again, there's so many of you like this. No, and I'm saying, no family is going to be perfect. No family is going to be perfect. And no spiritual family is going to be perfect. No church is going to be perfect. I always tell people that say, well, I'm going to, I don't like that church. I'm looking for a perfect church. I always tell them, well, when you find it, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> Nothing in life is perfect other than your salvation and the Bible that you hold in your lap today. So no family is going to be perfect, even a spiritual one. There, but, and there will be issues that arise. There always is. The difference will be in most physical families, they'll never sit down and open up a Bible to fix the problem. And I've been kin to a lot of those over the years, and the reason why they won't is because they don't want to be find out that they're the problem. It's just that simple. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, when a physical family has issues, whether it's with the kids or whether it's the moms or the dads or the brothers or the sisters or whoever, and the principles are applied and you get to the bottom line of what the real problem is without dealing with all the smoke and all the phony stuff that you don't really want to get down to the real problem. When a church has issues or a family has issues, if you apply the principles of the Word of God, it'll fix it. It'll just fix it. One of the things I like about my leaders, and this happens all the time, two leaders will be out there or two people will be out there doing something, you know, and they'll have a conflict over it. And uh, I'll ultimately find out about it, but by the time I found about it, I don't ever have to ever get in and fix it. You know why? Because their credibility is so strong and they're such good leaders that they use the principles and they fix it themselves and I don't have to get involved in it. That's leadership. That's what it takes. And that's the key. And, uh, you know, if you have an issue or family issues over the Word of God and you're standing for the truth, you know, and, and you lose your family over it, you're in good company because so did the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to happen. But you know what? In, in 
our case in the church age, then God gives you a new family. And, and I want you to notice something. Right after this great passage on the bread of life in John chapter 6, people started to walk no more with him. Great revolution, great revolution, yeah, great revelations of truth will bring revolution in your life. These people heard the great discord. They saw him running back to the Old Testament, but because they had personal issues, they decided, no, I'm not going to that church anymore. I don't really want to deal with my problems. I really don't want to deal with the issue. It's easier to go, and as they did, always blame somebody else for the problems. But at the same time, I mean, what about all the rest of the nation of Israel that followed him? You take Jesus' own family. They all departed him. All but James. How do, you, how do you justify that James stayed with the truth and the rest didn't? Hey, if everybody left, you'd be okay. But when you have a family that part of them leave because of the fact that they don't like the truth and yet part of their family stays because they have the, what do you do with that? How do you get around that? You see it, it's a pattern all through the Bible. And people started to walk no more with him. And all this is in the days we live in should be a very warning, a warning light to all of us. And this country gets more divided each day. The bottom line is, as the mystery of iniquity continues to work, the Word of God, the farther the world gets from it, the farther families get from it, the farther mom and dads get from it, you'll see the effect on every aspect of society. This is why America has the six or seven front war that she's trying to win, but she will never win. She's overwhelmed. If she had one or two of them, she might have a chance, but it's overwhelming her. It's like, it's like your house on fire and it's burning in the walls and the ceiling and all you got is a blanket to try to beat the fire out. This country's on fire and we've got nothing but a blanket. We're trying to snuff out the flames. And every time we get one down, another fire breaks out over here and pretty soon we get burned up with it. And you're going to see the effect on every aspect of society. We will get even more separated from it all if we stay with the Word of God. So, you know what? It's one of those things where you have to understand this. And I think this is incredible that you find this in chapter 7 in the first five verses right after he's the great discord on the bread of life and some people decide not to go there. And now we see his own family decides he's not going to follow him anymore except James. And we see it in the tribulation. We see it in the church age. We see that truth divides. But before God can put anything together, folks, meaningful in your life, he's going to have to divide some things. And it's a thing where it's Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. The Word of God provides vision. Vision of truth is what God is doing, but not just what God is doing, but what he wants you to do with that truth. And when that vision is gone, you're on your own. It's just, I mean, it's not complicated. When that vision is gone, now the truth of, you know, that, and that's true, of, you're on, and that's true of, of every nation. You can see the pattern in history. There was a time, look at Europe today, and, was a, and, and Europe uh, is a completely amoral. I mean, it is an absolute cesspool. But yet there was a time when most of Europe followed the Bible and was saved. What happened? 
pattern. How about Germany, Martin Luther? How about Czechoslovakia, John Huss? Well, there was a time under John Huss's ministry that almost everybody in Czechoslovakia was a born-again believer. There is no Czechoslovakia today. What happened? Patterns. 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 It's true of nations. It's true of churches. It's true of Christianity in general. It's true of families. It's true of marriages. And it's true of individual people. And I'm telling you, in a family, a father has to provide the vision for his wife. That's where it starts. That's your job. The job of a husband is to provide, first off, the vision of what God is going to do to his wife. Not chasing around in all the beer parties, not running out and doing all the things. It's his job to provide vision for his wife, and then together they provide vision to the rest of the family. The church, our job is to provide the vision for the whole family in a support mode. And with a vision of God, the family with that vision, the children with that vision, I guarantee you, when you have to face the things that are going to have to face, It'll never be a problem because you'll live above the circumstances and families stay together. You see, once God has to divide some things in your life, then he puts together, and if you stay with the book, your family never gets separated. And you can't blame anybody for that but you, the father. Because in any family, I don't care who you want to pass the buck to, I don't care what you want to say, in any family, it's the father who has to provide the vision. And when you don't, Somebody else will. And as I told you before, God quits injecting His truth into your life, and now you're done. America is done today. We've heard me say it many, many times, but I don't want to say that without saying this. She has had seven injections. In the history of America, starting with the inception in the 1700s up to 1950, God has injected through seven great awakenings the Holy Spirit of God into this country to keep them on track with the Word of God. And every one of those injections has met with rejection. And fundamentally, that vision will be what God is doing with us. It isn't a vision all by itself that I see what God is doing. It's the vision that you see what God is doing, but along with that, you see what God wants to do with you. And when you see that, then you and I, understanding that we will live above the circumstances or whatever comes our way. It comes down to this. Seeing through adversity what others through fear cannot see. And boy, that's true of everything. Perfect love casteth out fear. Greater is he that's in you that's in the world. Knowing that God will always separate based on his truth and then will put it back together. Right now, God has divided this country. 
by the hand of God because of her rejection of the Word of God. He's also divided the world through the mystery of iniquity. But remember, after the great tribulation period and the millennial reign comes in at the second coming, then he puts back what he divided. The patterns are set. Your job and my job is simply to learn the patterns, follow the patterns for everything because the patterns are infallible. The reason why we make bad choices, the reason why you've lost your family, if you have, the reason why you do some dumb things that we all do is because you forsake the patterns. You don't get into the Bible on a level or you're in some church someplace where the guy couldn't know, know in the Bible was like a blind bat trying to back in backwards. And you're just wasting your time spinning your wheels, learning nothing. But that's where you're at. Why should the end of your life be any different than the rest of your life? At some point, you as God's people have got to start seeing the patterns and realize that before God will put anything together, he's going to divide. The devil, on the other hand, will subtract first. Then he divides. And that's the way he works. So the patterns are set. Learn and follow the patterns. Know what to look for. So that when it happens to you, for any reason under any circumstances, you're not alone. And you realize that because of what Christ went through, the rejection of the nation of Israel, you're going to be rejected by your own family too. He went to his own kids, his brothers and sisters. They didn't believe in him at all. I'm sure they made fun of him. I'm sure they thought that he thought he was better than they were. And they were right that he was better than they were. But they could not see past the, here it is. They couldn't see past the physical and understand what was before them in the spiritual. And you know what? They had every Old Testament principle and promise and story that told them exactly who he really was. And they should have been absolutely honored, privileged to have him and their family, that their family was giving birth to the Messiah. See, it all depends on what you do with it. They had a pattern in the Old Testament. They knew Isaiah 7, 14. They knew the prophecies in Genesis. They knew every place that was back there in the Old Testament that should have told them who he was. They knew the story of how he was born in Matthew chapter 2. Why? Did the three wise guys, did they just kind of get messed up and show up? They knew the gifts that he gave them. They knew the three gifts that they gave them, what they represented to a king. What happened? The same thing happened to his family that happens to many families. They just never, never figured it out. So when it happens to you for any reason, under any circumstances, you're not alone. You're in good company. For the Jews themselves, for, excuse me, for Jesus himself went through what you're going through and God gave him a new family. You ever see that? Bible says he came unto his own. You finish the verse, and his own received him not. He came to Israel, that was his family, and they rejected him. His own personal family rejected him, so he dies on the cross. God divided him from his family, 
God divided him from God the Father on the cross. And then after, when we get into the church age, you know what God did? God gave him a new family, us. Now he's my father and I'm his child. You see, God may have to separate you here, but he'll never separate you without putting something together and give you a new family. It's the pattern. God separated him from Israel because of their rejection, but then God put it together with us. Now we are the family of God. We are. He's my heavenly father. I'm his child. You're his child. And that's the way it works, my friend. It's one of the greatest studies in the Bible of the patterns that you and I should follow. And that when you find yourself in this situation, you're in good company because he went through. It gives great new meaning to Hebrews chapter, what is it, 9, where it says he was tempted on all points like we are. He was. There isn't one thing that you and I will go through that he hasn't went through, include losing your family over truth. And you know what? He made it. So will you. Praise the Lord. Well, we'll hold up there. Great lesson for all of us for what's coming. Put a lot of things in perspective for you, I do hope. Let's pray. Don't forget.